This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Today, from the great state of North Carolina, we have Mr. Harrison Wicker from the Insurance People of North Carolina. What's going on, Harrison? Hey, it's going pretty good for a Monday. How's it going, David? It's uh, It's been a challenging Monday, as we've already discussed. I mean, I don't know how it gets any more challenging than auto owners' systems being completely down. I can't log on to their oh, website, yeah. their phone system, nothing, and I'm trying to deal with a bit of a claims situation for one uh, of my clients missed that part i knew about yeah. all our other challenges of the day so far but little, little cherry on top there yeah that's awesome yeah carriers really love to rock your world man especially on a monday if they can get kick started for you it's <laughs> <laughs> always a fun week yep absolutely so harrison talk a little bit about where you where you came from and sort of how you got into the role that you're in now yeah, so I, uh, I think like a lot of young producers, um, fell into insurance accidentally. Uh, never considered it as a career. Um, I was 18, started college, and uh, was going uh, to get my marketing strategy degree, you know, to end up um, really just digging in for, for a large company in the Triangle and uh, here in North Carolina, um, where I met a uh, life insurance IMO um, in Raleigh. And uh, dug in from a marketing standpoint, um, helping agents learn about the industry. And uh, from from the beginning of that process, it was never really a you know end career for me. It was more of a you know just putting it on my paper so I could move on to the next you know big thing after college. And uh, once I really dove into the industry more and more, um, realized I loved working with agents. Um, but I noticed a lot of agents never had the processes in place to really succeed. Uh, I think that's why you see a lot bow out within their first two years. Um, so, you know, getting that start and that headwind uh, from, you know, the agent perspective uh, was really big, learning from the guys who have made it. Um, I did that for going on three to four years where I uh, took over, book a business um, for the PNC guy at that same IMO. So they had a arm of the IMO that, you know, wrote some PNC business for, for the agents they worked with, uh, as well as, you know, just local, 
I'm just digging in with, you know, home auto excess market. Um, I really enjoyed working with the business owner side. It's a different challenge. I think, you know, life insurance is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a numbers game. And I, I'm, I'm really a guy, I, I dig into preparation. I really like to challenge and every account is different. Um, so for me, um, you know, getting into that, starting with a book of business, it was, it was small, $50,000, uh, really had to uh, grit my teeth and, you know, work at it. Um, I was, you know, 22 at the time. I just graduated college um, and really wanted to get after it, make a, make a name for myself in a sales business. Um, you know, my dad had worked in management uh, in the oil industry for 20, 25 years. He's still, still doing it. Um, and for me, that was, that was kind of always where I wanted to end up. But I never realized until I started growing my own book of business uh, in the property and casualty world, A, how much I loved it. And B, you know, how much of an impact you can make um, coming in on these accounts and, you know, being 22, 23 at the time, you know, people look at you a little differently, but if you come in with the right strategies and, you know, the right people in place around you, you know, you're, you're starting on level ground with the other agent, which is cool. Yeah. So what would you say the biggest thing is you've learned moving into the, the PNC world from where you, where you started out? Yeah, I think... Um, you know, you just have to refine what you're looking for, what your ideal client is, um, not chasing it. I, I dug around in the excess market a lot, um, non-standard, you know, would really hit anything under the sun. If it, if it came my way, I'd write it. Um, and for me, I think I just had to refine my process and get to the point where I had to learn how to say no. Um, you know, ideal clients, uh, you know, weren't going to fall in your lap. You had to chase it. But getting after every business was not something that was sustainable in the long run uh, from a you know revenue standpoint. Yeah. What's the ideal client look like for you now? Yeah, I love uh, middle market workers comp. So uh, my agency writes a lot of, you know, five to 10, $15,000 accounts, but I like anything around the 50,000, a hundred thousand mark. Um, for me, um, I actually just refined my business. So about six weeks ago, I made a change where 100% of my prospecting is done just based off of workers' comp, uh, which I think is really, you know, pushing me to have a better 2021 um, than I've had. And I like all the data that you can see on a prospect beforehand. You know, coming in, I'm a guy who I'm early to every meeting. I like being overprepared, um, even if they don't know it, because I can ask those questions. I can... I can steer everything in the direction that I want. And so for me, um, yeah, we work in about 12 verticals. So if it, if it falls outside of that, I'm saying, no, I'm passing it off and I'm, I'm not wasting my time on it. Nice. Yeah. So I remember from talking to you the one time you and I talked on the phone a few months back that you do a lot of, um, church, it was it churches and schools and things like that. What are some of the other verticals you guys are playing in? Yeah, so we uh, insurance people, and this, uh, this is a large part of the reason why I, uh, I joined the, the cast here, is um, they're really big into uh, breweries and distilleries, um, schools. We're the number one in the Carolinas for, for both of those. We have more than 150 charter schools that we work with. And, uh, you know, for me, you know, a lot of companies can, can go after contractors and stuff like that. But um, I like to have a little bit more fun with the verticals I work with, uh, one of my verticals is soccer. Um, I'm a big Arsenal fan, Premier League. And uh, so for me, um, 
some of my passions really involve some of those verticals, manufacturing, um, different things like that. Yeah. What's what What's the soccer vertical? How's that work? Yeah. So we we write a lot of uh, smaller nonprofit uh, soccer youth clubs, um, and at the end of the day, uh, they're connected with a lot of manufacturers, a lot of uh, different soccer mm. uh, press companies, um, make different equipment and stuff like that. And so at the end of the day, that's that's my target market. So I write a lot of these nonprofit accounts to try to break into that segment since they're so very uh, well-connected and don't really work outside that industry. It's uh, been a slow-moving process, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a lot of fun. Cool deal. So you like to play in middle market workers' comp. We don't know anything at all about that. <laughs> so why don't you walk us through a little bit about how what you're doing to uh, open opportunities for yourself without giving away the secret sauce? Yeah, for me, um, and I'm an open book. I, I tell people this all the time. Since I'm I'm only 26 now, so uh, you know I've been in insurance seven years. But for me, I redefine the process to build uh, advisory boards around my network uh, for the different verticals I work in, and that's kind of the avenue how I break into these accounts. Um, since I don't have the strong book of business referral partnership that I've you know some of these agents have had for a number of years, I uh, build myself a program that uh, is the best of the best. It includes bankers, CPAs um, that are all very one dimensional. They only write one book of business, um, whether it's, you know, dentists, it's going to be manufacturers, um, breweries as well. And so that's, that's kind of been the greatest strength. I think for me is coming into an account, being able to know more about them from other industry experts and uh, having that insight, you know, on similar accounts that they write as well. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, one of the reasons why we like comp is exactly what you said. There's a lot of data that's available to you um, in the open market without having to engage with the client to ask a ton of questions on the front end. And what I like about it is, especially when we're doing things in terms of the experience mod, it's very difficult for a prospect to argue with you about the results of a mod analysis because it's their numbers, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not a hypothetical, like if this happens, if this doesn't happen, it's like, it's, this is what it is. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's always funny to me because we lead with the mod for that reason, for the fact that it's able to be, um, you know, we can, we can run through a mod analysis relatively quickly, glean some good information, validate that the mod's right. And then begin to break it out into you know sp more specific information, whether it be by location, so that you can hold individual units responsible for their performance regarding increase in mod points as a result of claims under that manager's watch, or you know even if we get into the conversation regarding indirect cost of claims and all of the stuff associated with that, I mean it always cracks me up when we go in. I mean we've probably said it a hundred times on the podcast. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the indirect cost associated with a comp claim across general industries anywhere between two and twenty times the direct cost. So we always use two. Like you can't argue if we're using two. If you've got an experience mod that's two point two three, and I'm using a two x multiplier for indirect costs, I'm doing you a favor. Your, your indirect costs are actually probably much higher than that. And most of the time, people want to, they scratch and they claw and they fight back. And, and my response is always the same. 
hey, look, you're right. It's probably not 2X. That's what best-in-class companies have. You need to understand that you're you're presenting an argument to me, and what you're asking me to accept is that you have an experience mod that's F minus, F double minus at 2.23, but somehow you've managed to crack the nut and become best in class at this containment of soft costs on workers' compensation claims. That's what you're asking me to believe. And that's usually, if I have to get to that point and be that abrupt <laughs> in the conversation, that's when the light bulb goes off. Some right. people will never get it, right? Some people are never going to understand and, and again, agents are kind of on the fence too. Some people will tell you you should throw soft costs and total cost to risk. Some people don't. I happen to believe you should throw them in there as long as you're using a consistent multiplier every time. Uh, you know, as long as I'm using 2x every single time, um, I don't think that that's an issue. I'm going to use it across the board for everybody. I'm going to tell them what the number is and why we use it. Based on where that came from, that's credible enough information. I think it's safe to to throw it in there. But uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of times that people just have never even had that conversation. What when you've gone in? What would you say one of the most creative approaches is that you've used to get somebody's attention in order to even have that conversation about yeah, what so you I guys like, do? I like coming in from the uh, lowest possible mod standpoint. You're asking that question from the gate hey, do you know what your lowest possible mod is? And oftentimes, if they've got an experienced mod, you're going to get a kickback if you have, if you ask that question. Um, they're not giving you a kickback based on, hey, I'm set, I'm okay in my program. They're going to be like, hey, I don't know what that is. Um, you know, and you show them a roadmap uh, to success from the gate um, with other industry verticals, uh, you know, that you've worked with. I actually had a pest control company, um, largest in the state, and uh, he kept giving me the kickback on, uh, on their experience mod history. And like, you know, we're all set. Uh, 15 straight years of, being, uh, of having a mod over 1.5. And, uh, you know, they're, they're on the verge of, you know, having a number of carriers just not even look at them because they have no uh, pr processes in place to really be sustainable long term. Um, they're a $150,000, $160,000 account which isn't that big for, uh, you know, the size that they are. But uh, when we start talking about that lowest possible mod and showing them that roadmap, you're really driving down, hey, here's how much you're paying compared to your industry peers. And uh, I like leading with, you know, an industry article or something related to, uh, to safety that is generally the number one driving point on injuries. Um, so I give them some kind of, you know, actionable advice where, hey, if you're not doing this, this is what you need to look out for. Um, and that's generally how I get that first meeting. How can your response of I'm all set <laughs> make <laughs> any sense if you've had a mod over one five for 15 years? That's ridiculous. It's one like, of those things, man. Business owners, like, uh, you know, they get into the, they get into the process of, of bidding and quoting every year. So they don't think anything of it. Um, you know, they'll, they'll send it out to market and, uh, you know, it's just in their head that, Hey, you know, we're getting 90 days out. We're going to shop it. It's all fine because it's been fine the last 15 years. But they've never had someone take the time to talk to them about, hey, this is where you're at. You know, if your injuries keep keep at this point, you know, it's it's only going higher. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is they're paying 50% of what an average operator in their industry is doing. They're not even at their minimum mod or lowest possible mod when you're using that. So, I mean, that's one of the things when we start hitting with what we, you know, the two nose, two ES that we're using for booked appointments, that's immediately where we start, right? Yeah. So they can't say, no, we're all set. If they do, they're an idiot and they don't need to be our client anyhow. But I mean, we lead the conversation with, hey, just, just out of curiosity, I know you weren't expecting my call. I apologize. I've only got a minute myself, so I promise I'm going to be brief. But I do have a question. Are you happy with the fact you're paying at least 55% more than your than the average peer in your industry for your workers' comp? Right. What are you going to do? Say, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm happy. I'm good. We've been good for 15. You know, we don't mind paying the 55% above average surcharge. That's how we roll, <laughs> right? It's not like you're getting any bells and whistles on your comp policy for that. It's punitive. And right. then we follow that up with over the course of the last three or four years, has anybody come in and done a comprehensive experience mod audit for you on your workers' comp? And guess what? The answer is no again. So the follow-up is, well, since you're paying at least 55% more than your peer group, and since no one has come in to audit your mod to even make sure that it's accurate, let alone tell you what your minimum mod is, wouldn't you agree that it makes sense for us to spend 20, 30 minutes talking about how we can do that and make it as painless as possible for you? You can't answer the first two questions no and not answer the first question yes. Right. And that's directly out of Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. You, the, the human brain subconsciously. Probably a pretty cool book. Yeah, if you ever get one sent to you. <laughs> the human brain subconsciously feels in control when they say the word no. Doesn't matter if it's a hard no or if it's just a no, tell me more or a no, not right now or whatever else. So we've taken the stance that we want to completely flip the script on the phones and go to two no's, you know, a no to a yes or two. If you can get two no's to a yes, it's even better. And you book way more appointments that way. It's a crazy. It's a complete paradigm shift in terms of what you think. So anytime you ask the question, that's what we've we've basically done. And we talked to all the people that are in Killing Commercial about the same thing. Think about the question you would normally ask and then go back and change how you would ask that question to get them to answer it in a way that they say, that they say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you were to say... Are you aware that you're paying 55% more? That's not is that's not going to get you the same answer because you don't have the psychology or the emotion attached. These are business owners. Plus, so it's also easier for them at that point to just be like, yeah, you know, me and my agent have talked about it. We, you know, we're putting something together to fix him. Like that just allows them to feed you a line of BS, like right there. Right. Yeah. That's why I think that you have to ask them, does it make you happy? And let them know, right. look. You suck 55% (laughs) worse than your competition, than your average competitor does. Are you happy that you're a loser? Yeah. Then depending on the premium volume, I mean, if that accounts, that accounts 150 grand, but that's with a $55,000 mod. So it's a hair less than a hundred thousand in manual premium for the most part, something that size minimum mod. I don't know. I, you would know because you did the mod analysis on it. I'm sure. But I would imagine it would come in in the low point eights, high point sevens. Yeah, it was, you, a, it was a point eight one. Yeah, and, that's what uh, I figured. It would have to, I was going to say like point eight two. If I'm being completely transparent, I'm not going to pretend like I win the prize for guessing it on the money. But I figured it would be like in anywhere between a 
like a 0.78 and a 0.82 is where I figured it would fall. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things too. Like that's why I love having the conversation in the, the initial prospecting conversation with the CFO, because generally you're going to get those no's a lot easier because their end goal is to save the company money. You know, they're looking for a difference uh, between, you know, what they paid last year and what they paid this year. Um, all, and they want to see that uh, workable for the next three years. That's why, you know, being able to come in from the gate and saying, hey, let's put in a three-year plan to get you to that mod, um, I think is, is huge. Yeah, absolutely. So when you go in, what's that engagement look like? I mean, how how are you prospecting? Are you prospecting around renewal? Or are you prospecting well before renewal? I mean, I know that you're associated with uh, BIGN in your agency. So I know some of how Scott teaches because the agency I was at prior, we, we were in BIGN. Um, so are you following that roadmap? Yeah, I'm following it to a T. Um, you know, I do like coming in before renewal, uh, but on the larger accounts, um, if you're looking at an excess of $100,000 in premium um, for a workers' comp, I found greater success coming in after renewal because they're going to have had challenges during that renewal process. You likely already have an idea of what those challenges are. So you can just say, um, hey, you know, this is the steps we would have taken if we, if we were your agent. Um, here's the steps to get to the next renewal. And then you can sign a... Uh, you know, I don't even go after the agent or record letter at that point. I go after a fee. You know, here's what you need to pay me uh, to get to the point where you need to be next year. You know, your agent's getting paid. Let him do some of the work um, and see how that works out for you. But, you know, if you really want to see, you know, gold at the end, at the end of the year, then, you know, hire me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we've been able to do here is we'll, we'll go after, we'll, we give them the option of charging them a fee up front, but most of the time that's a fallback position because what we're really trying to do is find money through an aggravated inequity on a mod error or a jacked up audit or something and then recover that money and do a revenue split on the found money because it's a whole lot easier for me to tell a CFO, hey, I'm going to find you some money you wouldn't have it if it wasn't for me. Are you willing to split that 50-50 with me on the recovery? And if the answer is no, well, then what would you be willing to split? And if the answer is nothing, then the answer is, okay, well, then you're going to get 100% of the money that you have right now, right? Which is yeah. none. I'm not going to do the work product for you. But, you know, I don't know that I've ever had anybody. I think the worst case scenario is somebody told me, no, we won't split it 50-50 we'll split it 70, 30, we'll keep 70 and we'll give you 30. Well, the numbers made sense. So that deal worked. Now I'm not arguing to get another line item on, a, on an income statement on the expense line. I'm just finding new money and taking some of that. It's a harder conversation. I mean, I'm not saying that it's impossible. Obviously, if you're doing it, it works. And it's worked for me before. But I always like to try and not have them try and go and get extra funds for yeah. the risk management budget because those are already tough to come by to begin with. So we go yeah. through that auditing process a little differently, and this helps with that fee. Um, we go in from a 10% split standpoint. So we let them keep the 90 and then roll it over into that fee. Um, so we're seeing, you know, not everything up front. Um, we allow them to kind of roll it over, and we get a, you know, assigned AOR here. We're going to work, work for you until we get that book of business. This fee is going to come in place um, until that happens. 
Yeah, and I've done that as well, where we'll go in and maybe start doing some work and, and tell them, here's what the fee is, but here's where you recover it back. When we yeah. go place your insurance, we're going to place your insurance net of commissions. So even though you're giving me some cash flow right now to fund what we're going to do to help you, your renewal will drop by that percentage that you were paying me and my fee is going to remain flat over the course of the year anyhow. I just like, I, I, I like going after the 50% because that way I get my money all in one chunk for starters. Yeah. And it's money already spent. So, you know, they're happy if they, if yeah, they, they don't happy. even know it. They yeah, don't right. even know they're missing it. Found money. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, that's, that's that piece of it. So typically like you go in, you're going to get what's your, if you had the best time to get in front of an account, let's just call it a, $150,000 workers' comp account, maybe the whole package, whole whole insurance programs between two and 250. When are you going in? Uh, I'm generally going in 120, 150 days out. And I'm doing a, you know, I'm doing a prospect one on one, generally about that 120 mark. Because um, I see a lot of agents start picking up the phone and calling as soon as it hits 90 days. I want to be ahead of that window. Um, and I want to help them project their mod ahead of that window as well that their broker's not even talking about um, because then they'll already see some kind of value in working with me uh, that their broker hasn't instilled you know, in them yet. Um, and I see, I see a lot of guys drop the ball too. Um, they let it get down on those big accounts until 60, 45 days. And uh, you know, carriers, we like to come in with a, a full comprehensive you know, underwriting package. So we'll do employee interviews. Um, we'll do some stuff on the back end that we don't always tell all the carriers uh, to get a better idea of how we're going to set them up for success in our workers' comp program and uh, get them to buy into that. So you said something interesting, and I'm going to be devil's advocate here, but maybe not really. I'm just going to ask a question around it. You say you do things that you don't necessarily tell the carriers. I'm yep. interested in what that looks like, number one. And, num and then tell me, tell me what more flesh that out a little bit. And then I'm going to share my two cents with you because I think that you and I think the same way on this. Yeah. So, you know, the process is, uh, you know, the carriers are more interested in what's on paper, the injuries, um, you know, they're more data driven. So they want to see that and they're going to look at patterns and whatnot. We're also looking at those patterns, but we're trying to figure out, you know, a, a broader scope uh, and get kind of to the underlying issues of, their workers' comp program. So we're asking questions um, from everything from the C-suite all the way down to, you know, um, new hires and uh, just trying to figure out, you know, what their hiring process looks like, um, things that are going to not necessarily encourage injuries, but are going to set uh, the pr current program up for um, not having success with uh, when we take it over. So, a lot of those interviews, a lot of those uh, questions that we ask them are not going to be given. Uh, we're going to be kept, you know, private for our agency. But we build our work comp program and our process out based on those answers. Um, and it's, it's pretty open-ended. You know, we've got, you know, depending on the vertical, we've got it set up to where uh, we have specific questions we ask. But we kind of just let them run with it. Because I think when, you're, when you get to the uh, bottom line, they're happy to share that once you start breaking down those walls. Um, and you get more uh, depth out of the questions that you don't even ask that they start answering.
Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of it too is one of the things that you have to do, and this is my opinion, and I'm always looking at things from a cultural perspective and what I can do to get myself ingrained into that company as quickly as possible. Right. And so when you talk about, when, when I talk about things that I'm doing that the carrier that I don't necessarily convey to the carriers, you know, one of the things that I, and look, I'm sure that carrier reps that are listening to this are going to send me hate mail. Honestly, don't really care. You know, don't really care if you don't like what I'm getting ready to say or not. It's really none of your business and I'm not going to stop. When I engage with a prospect, I sit down and say, look, I'm not a licensed attorney, but the easiest way for me to explain what our relationship is, is you have attorney-client privilege with me. Nothing you say leaves this room. Nothing you say will ever be used against you. I need you to be as honest and forthright with me as you can. Kyle has heard me say this. And I've people still people yeah. still lie. Right. Yeah. We we had an account last year. I would like to punt this guy right in the freaking scrotum <laughs> for what he, what he did guys. I mean, we we went around and around and around. He was adamant that they they did not have a confined space entry issue in this particular company that did septic work. And we said, we're going to have to exclude it. We talked the carrier in to do it. Mind you, this dude has been with the company for 25 years. So there's no way. Sorry, continue. Yeah. And so basically, long story short, the dude lied to us, right? So So I don't know. Yeah, apparently I wasn't good at bringing him over to our side. But on the flip side, there's been almost every time in my career that I've had that conversation that you build rapport very quickly with whoever it is you're talking to. And over time, in a much quicker time, rather, you have the ability to gain trust from that person because they see, okay, this guy's legit. He's actually not going in, in you know, ratting, ratting me out or whatever. At the end of the day, the carrier can use the data to figure out what's going on. I want yeah. to be able to have them realize that I want to get unlimited access to their operation to touch and feel every piece and part of it that I need to so that I can go not just get them the best insurance deal, but craft the best overall strategy to fix their issues going forward. You know, and I think that's one of the places where um, I don't think agents do a good job of drilling down deep enough. I, I really don't. I think that they pretty much take things at face value. They're looking for exposure data. They're not looking for underlying issues that are really driving the cost of premium. And so as long as they get the loss runs and the projected sales and payrolls and everything else, they're out. We're good. Nah, we don't need to do any more than this. At the end of the day, too, it's, it's, too, uh, it's too expensive from the carrier to, to go into that. Uh, and they've got all the underwriting data that they need from you know, working in those industries that they don't need to. Um, but I think for us as agents, building a successful program, the devil's in the details. So you really have to, you know, dig in and uh, get them to buy in uh, to your process. And that's being trusted from the gate. Listen, if I have an account that has hair on it, which the majority of them that we go after have some level of hair on them, otherwise we wouldn't be talking to them. We're going to do the mod analysis and that becomes a material part of the submission. We're going to do a loss control visit. If it's something that I don't feel comfortable doing myself, I'm going to hire a third-party loss control person that's got expertise in that industry, and I have a relationship with them to go in and do the baseline risk assessments that we do on the front end of these deals. And that could be anywhere from a 30 to 50-page report 
And guess what? That's going to the carrier as well. Because the fact is, you know, as long as you disclose all of this stuff to them, the carrier already knows that it's happening. Half of it has to do with whether or not the agent's being honest. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I work uh, quite a bit in the assigned risk space too here in the Carolinas. So I'm working with accounts in excess of $15,000 in premium um, on the voluntary side that for whatever reason got kicked out, whether their broker didn't have the markets or they had some type of risk in their program that voluntary markets just didn't want to touch. So when you work with those, and a lot of them end up being larger nonprofits um, that don't realize they're paying two to three times and they have other options. So at the end of the day, uh, you've got to make it financially feasible for them to get out of it. Um, and the details are, are what's going to get you there. Uh, if they're not disclosing things, there's no chance that the carrier is going to take it. When they see uh, the underwriter already sees that there's hair on it, they know it um, from either past submission or uh, you know details on reviewing the account with someone else. Well, most of these carriers are going to do their own, you know, um risk evaluation anyway. So it's not like yeah. they're not going to find out it, but if you can get out ahead of it and say, all right, here's the things that we, we found on our end, here's what we're comfortable with, what we're not comfortable with and what we think that we can improve on or put in, you know, X policy to, um, to help them out here. I mean, that, that makes your case stronger and makes it more uh, palatable for, for some of the carriers. Yeah. Honesty is key uh, from the gate. If, if you don't disclose something, they find out, uh, through the underwriting process, that's that's going to be a bad look for not only your agency, but uh, to submission in general. Um, and that's put up red flags for uh, for some of the companies that I want uh, in my preferred markets uh, that I've actually been able to look at. I've had carriers decline based on previous submissions from other agents because they didn't disclose something. The carrier won't even look at it for another five years. So it's it's interesting how those details can hurt the client down the road and you don't even know it. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think from our perspective, it'll never be the carrier. The, the embarrassment isn't the carrier finding something we didn't disclose to them. It's usually we've gone to bat for somebody and then yeah. we find it prior. Yeah. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. It's uh, cause it's a long process. Workers comp is, um, is something that I think more recently, a lot of agents are getting into, um, but a lot of people shied away because of the commission levels, because of the time spent on it. But for me, I love a challenge. And when you go to bat, which, you know, every workers comp, uh, you know, prospect, you have to go to bat for him, um, especially when you're working in the middle market, because the carrier underwriters, if you're going to have a competitive program and a strong program, you know, they need the details, but you want to set them up for success over, you know, a period of time. And that's the long run. Well, the other thing too, is it's different in North Carolina, at least if you're, if you're inland than what it is, if you're in a coastal state too. Yeah. Right. So for us, yeah, you might be in a position where a comp carrier is paying lower commission, or you could be in a position like we are right now, where one of our main carriers is paying like, 17 points on new business through the end of the year. So that's better than half the package markets we have. Yeah. But, you know, I've never looked at it that way because I, you know, the way that I came up in this industry, we always had issues getting property capacity. So it was just understood that if you want property, you got to give me the whole enchilada. You got to give me the, 
you got to give me all of the workers comp, the GL, the auto umbrella, everything, or I'm not going to give you property capacity. And so that's how underwriters have leveraged it. So we've, I've just never really piecemealed stuff together. I've got one account in my book of business that I only write workers comp on. Out of all of my accounts, I have one. And there's a reason for it because the other lines are in a captive that is specific to that industry. And it makes all the sense in the world for them to be there. Yeah. Yeah. We've got, we've got one like that on our books where, you know, the rest of their package is in a, in a captive program. But, you know, for me, I've got, I've got some companies that I only do the workers comp for and I won't touch anything else just because um, they're either not going to be competitive for me or from a revenue standpoint, it just doesn't make sense to move them from where they are. Yeah, no, I think you gain a lot of ground there too. One of the things I like to do, so I'm with you in getting in where I'm I'm sort of torn in this because this is something we've been tossing around back and forth in discussion for about the last month or two now because we're working on on building a, a, a mousetrap, for lack of a better term, a business development thing. I like going in a month after renewal. I love going in a month after renewal. It is it is much more difficult to get in a month after renewal, but yeah. if you can get in, you're going to close that account. I mean, it's literally impo- almost impossible. You really have to do something stupid to not get that piece of business. And I like going in the month after renewal for a few reasons. The first one is that they really haven't put the renewal to bed for the year yet. They know they're still getting ready to deal with audit. So if they say, I'm done with insurance for this year, say, oh, do you already have your audit? And the answer is going to be no. Well, then they haven't put insurance to bed for the year yet. I also like it because if the renewal was bad, then, you know, that's still going to be fresh on their mind. And I also like it because they don't have to go to their agent to get loss runs. They've probably still got them from the renewal that they went through. So I can go get the data that I need and it'll be credible enough for me to do the analysis that I need to do to then go in and present our findings. See, when we go in and engage with somebody, our first goal is just to get some information, get them to agree to let us do a mod audit. Yeah. We're not trying to close business on the first deal. I think a lot of people are under the impression when we talk about, you know, the the meeting that we're going to go for the AOR. It's never that first meeting. I mean, it would be really out of the ordinary for us to go after an AOR on meeting number one. I mean, we'd have to pull in the place would have to be basically the comp program would have to be burning down and they're begging for help. Right. You know, so all we're trying to do is say, hey, look, we want to do the audit. We want to run this thing through Magic. We want to make sure that we come back and give you the reports that we can, so we can show you your top loss drivers and frequency and severity. Da, 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 da. Then we go back and present that. And that's when we say, look, here's what your problems are. Here's how we fix those. And here's how you pay for us. If we can do that, Number one, we have a much higher likelihood of find, of getting found money if there's you know aggravated inequities on the mod, or there's been bad audit advice given in the past, or bad audits that they just signed off on because nobody ever reviewed them on the agency side. I literally review every single audit for every single one of my clients. I don't ever tell my clients to pay an audit unless I've had the ability to run through it, and we end up disputing probably ninety five percent of them. And guess what? We get money back on almost every single one of those because what's happened is carriers have started outsourcing. I don't know how long it takes to get certified to be a workers' comp auditor, but 
I have a feeling it's probably a Saturday afternoon and about 99 bucks, you know, and you have the ability to get your certificate to go do that. And I don't trust them. I don't, I don't think that they're, I don't think that their interests are aligned. Their goal is to pencil whip the audits, get them. Look, dude, we've had guys, <laughs> you're one boy, man. <laughs> Kyle watched me. I'm like, watch this guy, man. This audit will be over in five minutes. He'll come in as number one. Uh, take him a bottle of George Dickel when you go in. <laughs> but this guy, I said, watch what happens. I had my client had everything prepared. The dude came in. He's like, oh, my man, I know you. This will be a good one. You got everything ready for me? I said, sure do. Boom, here it is. Handed it over to him with a nice, neat ribbon on top. Goes back, audits it, done. Everything's completely done, right? So rule, rule number one, have everything ready. Right. Like the worst audits that I've had to deal with are the people that are um, they're, they're the people that are looking for certificates that you know were procured during the audit period while the auditor is there. Like they didn't do anything to prep for it ahead of time. So we walk all of our clients through everything they need to do to prep it. But you know, I love being able to help people get through the audit. What's better than getting into an account a month after renewal? Saying, "Hey, look, I'm happy to help you with your audit." Next thing you know, the the guy, the guy that's from the outsourced audit place that likes George Dickel is the one who walks in. He knows you. You have everything ready to be, you know, presented to him. He takes it. He doesn't even do the audit there. He takes it home and does the audit, and they get a favorable result. All of a sudden, you look like an absolute superstar after they went through a crappy renewal because you set everything up the right way. You you, you greased the auditor. And I mean, that's the whole thing. One of the things that's coming out of this episode is the fact, people, you're learning where the sausage gets made. It's not always pristine, right? Like there's things you have to do in this game to grease people and, and, and make things go the way you want them to go. We didn't do anything illegal or, or shady with the auditor. We just made sure everything was prepared. And that guy appreciates that based on the fact that every time he has an audit for one of our clients, it goes seamlessly. So and I don't even have a bottle of Dickel. So um, <laughs> what else could you? For the record, he never yeah. gets a bottle of Dickel. He never, <laughs> that's, an in, that's an inside joke. I have never given an auditor any type of anything for considerations on an audit. But I will sit there and talk to them. I will sit there and build rapport with them because I have found that there are so many adversarial relationships with these auditors that if you take the time, most of them are reasonable people, right? So and like you alluded to earlier, mo most of the time we're going to dispute it anyways. So if we have to have that conversation, it kind of already makes it a little bit easier off the jump by doing that. Yeah. And, and, and most of the time, if I say, look, I'm, you know, if this thing's not right, we're going to dispute it. Let's see if we can't figure it out and make, make it right before you leave. You know, and that's, that's the other thing. Some of them are real sticklers, right? Some of them want to make sure, okay. I need to see all of the certificates of insurance. No, you don't. You can go to the Department of Financial Services website and it will show you that workers' comp was in effect for these subcontractors we don't have certs for for the entire time of the policy period. Quit busting my client's chops over the fact that you need this, quote, documentation when you can go to public domain and get that information for free. And it proves the exact same thing you're trying to prove. This doesn't need to be adversarial. I mean, I've had auditors where I taught them that trick. They didn't even realize that they could just go to the DFS, pull it up. And if the policy canceled at any time, it's going to show the cancellation in there. And it's going to show the, the gap and everything else. Yeah, so, I would bet that there's a, a large number of auditors that don't know that. They're just yeah. 
box checking and going through, you know, their list of stuff that they need to get and and that's it. Yeah, they're human. I mean, they wouldn't be treated that way. So if you can come in and have a friendly conversation at the end of the day, when you tell them they're wrong, uh, you know, they appreciate it at the end of the day uh, that you taught them something. And I think uh, for a lot of auditors, um, you know, if you're working with the same one on the same account every year, it's going to be a better relationship. We see something like 75% of audits that are wrong. So if you can come in and, uh, and have a better process for that, it's smoother, not only for, uh, you know, for your client, but the auditor appreciates that a heck of a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Loss control people the same way. I'm probably not going to teach a loss control person anything because unless like it's a card trick or something like that. But I mean, you know, the, the truth is that's not how my brain's wired. I stink at loss control. If you want me to go in and be the person to point out all of the hazards and everything, you're, I'm going to fail miserably in that role. I know how to do certain things. I know there are certain things that I'm looking for. Like if there are electrical cords that are like, Kyle can probably tell you all of my low hanging fruit. If you have air compressors and you don't have hose reels, retractable hose reels mounted from the ceiling so that the stays off of the floor for a trip hazard, I'm going to notice that. If you have a drill press and you don't have a wide base that's mounted to the floor so that the thing has the ability to tip over instead of being stable, I'm going to notice that. I'm going to look at the electrical panel. These are things that I figured out over the course of time from just simply going on loss control visits and paying attention. But I, my skill set is not to do that. And so I don't try to be what I'm not. What I would challenge agents to do is participate in that stuff. I think that so many times agents find out about loss control visit from the letter they get with the recommendations, and then it becomes a compliance piece. That could have been avoided if you if you made it a point to attend loss control visits for all of your clients. Walk around and look. You're going to learn things. If nothing else, you're investing your time as tuition to learn more and become more effective at the point of sale. That's it. I can pretend like I know a lot of stuff. I'm going to walk around with my cell phone and I'll video the things that I recognize, but I know where I'm weak. That's that's one of the places where. I could be a lot better. I don't want to be. As long as I can hire somebody to do that, that does that for a living and is the best at that, that's who my clients deserve. They don't need somebody who's out there just trying to, you know, be everything to everybody. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. So you go in, you diagnose the problem, you, you give them some information. What kind of, what kind of resources are you guys using? Are you using, is it the BIGN stuff? And by the way, I love Scott. Scott Addis yeah. is the freaking, he's the godfather, man. I mean, there's nothing negative you can say about that guy at all. Um, and his his process is sound and proven, you know, for certain. So I, uh, you know, I, w- I think he's probably molded the uh, outcomes of more insurance agents' careers than he'll ever realize uh, be- just from people who have one or two degrees removed from Scott, been able to absorb some of the experiences that some of the people who are directly connected to him get. But are you um, are you using any kind of like a broker briefcase or anything like that when you're going in? Do you have access to that? What, what mod software are you guys using to do the mod audits? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the big end process is uh, kind of a game changer uh, from a fundamental standpoint. Um, for me, I never really had a mentor in the game until I uh, joined insurance people back in March. 
And so for me, um, laying down that groundwork as, uh, you know, early stages of COVID was important. But, uh, you know, I, I shy away from um, certain things in that process. Um, for me, uh, we actually do everything in-house from a mod standpoint. Uh, I think from, you know, a book of business down the road, we're going to have to use some kind of software just from a producer standpoint. Uh, but, you know, it really drills my game and teaches me some new things, uh, being able to do it uh, in-house with Mitch Coffin, Kaufman. He's a work comp master um, in the agency. And uh, you get to see you guys just doing it manually in a spreadsheet. I mean, that's yeah. the thing, man. I was telling one of the guys from one of the software companies that wanted to get in a pissing match with me one day. I hate to rain on your parade, but your product is not proprietary. The mod calculation yeah. is mathematics. So if I wanted to spend the money, I could just go hire a developer and have them build my own mod software. Yeah. If I felt froggy. So, I mean, it's not like it's not like it's horribly complicated to do if you know how to do it. And it only makes you stronger at the point of sale. If you can, you know, make sure that you, if you understand the pieces apart and parts and even more so if you're able to take those and articulate them in layman's terms to the people that you're calling on. Yeah. Right. I think, that, I, I that's think it's really cool being able to like show them physically, Hey, here's what we did. Here's how we got there. Um, you know, Magic is awesome software. Uh, I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's something the agency is probably going to utilize probably in 2021. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's been a really big game changer for us with some of these middle market because they understand that we know more uh, than their current broker. Uh, no one's ever shown them exactly how the process works and how you, they get to the premium that they're paying and why they're overcharged. Yeah, it's um, I, I talk about this, too, all the time. They've made it too easy to do mod audits, right, with the software to a certain degree. Because if you give an agent the ability to take a shortcut, most of the time they're going to take the shortcut, yeah. right? So when they, when these companies that put this software out have made it to where you can scan your worksheet in and it's going to ultimately give you the um, – it's going to give you the reporting, they think that's great. We will beat them every time at the point of sale because they've done nothing at all to validate that the mod is even correct. Yeah. You're operating off of the assumption that the mod worksheet is accurate, and that's not always the case. In fact, many times it's not the case. So we like to enter everything manually. So while we don't necessarily do it in a spreadsheet or in, in some sort of formula that we've created ourselves, we still take the long route to enter that in. And you know, some of what I do is antiquated and old school, but this is what I can promise you. If I'm sitting down and entering claims in directly from loss runs, there's a 100% chance I'm going to pick up on trends yeah. that I wouldn't pick up on otherwise. I'm not saying you don't have the ability or people don't have the ability to pick up on trends if they do it the other way. I'm just telling you the way I'm wired. I know nothing is going to slip through the cracks if I'm manually going through that process and it helps me see and understand what's really impacting things and opening the door for a much more focused conversation with people when we go to present. I can't tell you the number. And the other one is, and I, I know I talk about this all the time, but the other one is grouped losses. I, I don't use grouped losses when I do a mod analysis. I ungroup them. What are the chances that you're going to see something that's happened multiple times that's been a small grouped loss 
that is a precursor for what could be a really nasty claim. And if you're only not, if you're only looking at what the Modmaster or the Modric report is going to have you uh, look at by just scanning it in and doing group losses, you could miss something that could potentially save your client from a really nasty injury down the road and subsequently some money. So again, it goes back to just because you can doesn't mean it's the best way to do it, right? Yeah, I think I think work comp is one of those lines where you really have to be intimate with it. You've got to have a deeper level of understanding of the uh, you know the client or the prospect you're working with. So if you're doing that all by hand, um, I agree. You're picking up you know different trends in the in the injuries that you might not you know see or uh, or understand until later down the road when one of those happens. You know those bigger injury claims that you could have potentially uh, you know completely prevented beforehand. And I think um, you know it, it's also what separates you in a, a prospecting conversation uh, because you have that deeper level of understanding of that of that company. Um, nothing's going to get by you. Yeah. So I started talking about how we've been flip flopping back and forth. The first one, the first thing I said was the first point of view, and that is I like to get in a month after they renew. The second part of it, though, is if I'm looking at this from a practical and a a, a tactical sales perspective. This is this is the undisputed truth. Our industry has conditioned buyers that we are going to call them 90 days before renewal. Yep. 90 days and closer to renewal to get an appointment to bid their insurance. And this is one of those areas where I've basically tried to hold my ground and try and continue to work way out in front, but I've shifted my position a little bit for a couple of reasons. Number one, people are used to getting that phone call at that time. You don't have nearly the resistance 90 days or 60 days before renewal. I don't, I'm not advocating that's the best case scenario. I don't want to work under that kind of timeline. But that's what our industries condition people to do. And so that's what they do. And so I'm moving more into, okay, let's go ahead. Let's focus on you know the top 20% of the accounts that I'm going after. I really want to get in there a month after renewal, because these are going to be a little longer sales cycle. I want to have the ability to ramp up, blah, 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 blah. But I think that if we are able to canvas with an appointment setting firm or an in-house appointment setter or whatever else, if we can canvas that other 80% that's used to getting that call 60 to 90 days before renewal, you can get them to take an appointment. I don't even care if I'm going in under the premise, I'm going to bid their insurance, right? I'm not going to bid their insurance. I refuse to bid their insurance. But if they think that's what I'm going to talk to them about, how much more powerful is my argument going to be when they're talking to a total of three or four agents and everybody else is talking about price, bid, quote, whatever else? And I walk in and say, yeah, you know, we're here to talk about total cost of risk and we, we don't bid insurance. That's not how we operate. We don't really think that you're going to get the best result that you could if you have multiple agents in the mix, here's why. And so our, our first thing is, let's go in with a completely different message. Yeah, that message sticks a month after renewal, but if that message is what's currently on the table compared to everybody else who does it the way it's always been done, it's also going to be magnified in that part of the process too. I just, that's that's how how I'm viewing it. So I'm looking really forward. We're, we're ramping up our calling efforts for the one-one cycle to see how much business we can pick up doing it more the tradition calling more around the traditional time 
and then hopefully getting some opportunities to go in and do what we do anyhow. Well, it's more impactful that way, right? I mean, if you're having that conversation with them before their renewal happens versus afterwards, I mean, their renewals already happen. So even though it may be a fresh take and something that they're not used to hearing, they already just renewed their insurance. So it still may not make, you know, it may not make a difference to them. But if you're having that conversation with them 60, 90, whatever, however many days before, then it's a little bit more time sensitive and it might hit home, in my opinion, a little bit. A little yeah, bit I, I think the the tricky part too is having an understanding of who you're talking to before you call them. Um, and that's why I like working with uh, industry vertical professionals who might already know these guys. Uh, so I can get a better, deeper understanding of how they operate in their company. Um, if they know them or know someone on the board, I'll call them ahead of time and, and just be like, hey, you know, I'm talking with, you know, this company, uh, you know, what do you think? And that'll shift my, my prospecting standpoint from, Hey, am I, am I reaching out 90 days before, or am I doing it after the renewal? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I started that back in, uh, probably May of this year and I picked up, uh, a much higher close percentage going in after they've renewed helping in the audit process, because I'm always finding challenges with that. Otherwise, you know, sometimes their mindset's going to be stuck in that, uh, you know, how many calls down on the agency list are you? Are you the 10th agent to call already? Um, and, and they're in that bidding and quoting mentality already if you're not the first one. So if you haven't had that conversation and they've heard it nine or 10 times um, before, their their mind already wants to say no to the most important question. Right. Yeah, so we're connected on social media. I get invites to stuff from you all the time. Tell me about some of these other little side hustles or whatever it is you have going on right now? Yeah. So, um, so, uh, for me personally, I, I get a lot of my business, um, on Facebook, on social media and I'm driving groups, um, and just pushing content out directly to, uh, to people. And there's a lot of data, uh, on social media that a lot of business owners are sharing that you're not going to find anywhere else. So for me, um, being a part of groups, being a part of, you know, those business owner conversations, even if you're not an active part in it, can help before that prospecting call. Um, and, you know, I, I've kind of learned that mentality a lot, uh, you know, from my wife. You know, she's a school teacher, um, but she's, she's a firecracker. She goes after everything and succeeds. So, you know, I've learned a lot of, you know, different processes in the way she thinks and the way she operates that I think comes back to what a lot of business owners um, are thinking. A, I think your wife looks like she enjoys a good German beer based on the pictures (laughs) that I've seen. Heck yeah. And and B, give me some examples. You said something that that resonated. I'm interested in what types of data you're talking about that you can see from business owners on social media that you might not find elsewhere. Yeah, there's a lot of local resources out there, larger groups on Facebook where business owners share their pain points their challenges and are upfront. I, I see a lot of community crowdfunding in terms of, hey, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for, um, you know, something that's going to help with my marketing or my operations. And I do a lot of drip campaigns. We just recently got HubSpot, um, which has been a game changer for me. So I'm looking for more one-on-one, really specific conversations I can have with the business owner based around something that they're already asking right now in that moment. 
So talk about HubSpot and being a game changer. We're huge HubSpot users. And yeah. probably, it's crazy, man, because you buy that thing and then you then the real work starts, right? Like yeah. once you have it. So um, there's just so many things that you can do with it that I'm so glad that we have somebody that's a dedicated resource to do nothing except program HubSpot. Yeah. We have full-time in-house person that does all of that stuff for us so that we're not having to try and figure out how to be CRM programmers and everything else. What's the biggest thing that you, that you gained from having HubSpot? When, when did you get it? Number one, and what's the biggest thing you gained from it? So we got it about, uh, I would say two months ago. Um, so we're, we're fairly recent, but the biggest thing is automation. Um, we've got a 12 month, uh, sales process that we go through and as soon as I onboard a client into it, it starts that campaign. And I can trigger it based off their responses, based off of things that they interact with. I can reshift, um, reshift that. And I think a lot of that just, it takes time off my plate, um, but it automates those little conversations before I call them. Um, and it's going to ask those- their renewal date, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always going off the renewal date. Um, mm-hmm. And depending on those conversations that I have, I'm either going to shift that uh, to 90 days before or 30 days after their renewal. So um, I think an important process in that is just that it's ever evolving. You know, no business ever, owner is ever going to be stuck in one uh, section. You're always moving them around, which it's been cool to see. Are you guys doing sales, service, and marketing with HubSpot or no? Yeah, we're doing, we're doing everything from a service standpoint. Um, a lot of that's still in-house. So we're, we're going to be transitioning that down the road once we kind of are able to automate it a little bit more. But um, the biggest thing is, is the marketing and sales. Yeah, it's interesting. What, what are you guys using for an AMS? Uh, we use, um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure because I'm not really plugged into that. I'm a, I'm a producer. I want to say it's AMS 360. But Good for you that you're not plugged into that. I would love to, <laughs> not, I would love to not ever be plugged into an AMS. So I'm my best not to. I mean, most of what we do is inside HubSpot anyhow, but yeah. unfortunately, uh, well, not for, unfortunately, Hawksoft's a great product. I have no complaints about them. It's just producers don't need to be spending time putting crap into computers. That's that's my yeah. thought process, right? So yeah. HubSpot is huge, and, and thankfully, we, we have all three modules. So for us, we do have the ability to create tickets inside the service side and alert the producers with the task to let them know to follow up with the service person. So for me, it's a whole lot better to be able to just sit and look at things in the dashboard and table view so I can see, oh, there's a bottleneck right there in the process. I probably need to figure out what that is and what's causing that heartburn and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's been nice not being able to have to rely a lot of my time on using um, an AMS. And I think HubSpot, um, you know, I'm still involved in the work comp claims and all the process. So I'm having to actively track all that. Um, but, you know, our, our strongest carriers allow us to automate some of that already from a worker's comp standpoint. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's fortunate for me in the, in the prospecting uh, point of view that I, I don't have to deal with all that extra. Yeah, it's good there. The other place that it's good is when you can put automated onboarding campaigns and things yeah. like that in place. One of the biggest complaints that I hear from agencies is that it takes forever for them to teach clients how to do business with them. Okay, well, we solved that problem. They get five emails from us in the first 10 days with videos about very specific things that are differentiators in doing business with us versus other people. So we walk them through that process and we educate them. And, and you know, 
it's crazy because I, you know something I take responsibility for is not keeping the pedal to the metal as much as I need to on HubSpot because when we first got it, I was gung ho about getting all of those campaigns and things done. And now I feel like so many times I get caught up doing like operating the agency that I don't slow down and step back and look and say, you know what, this is something that I could put a, put a work workflow around inside HubSpot that would make my life a whole lot easier. What does that look like? Let me map that out and say, okay, here are the triggers and all of the other stuff. So I need to become more committed in my agency for going back and looking at those things just from the operational perspective. I think we've got the sales and the marketing piece down, but it's all of the other stuff that it could do that we're not capturing um, nearly what we could. I bet you we're not even using 20%, 20, 25% at the most of what HubSpot can do. The other part of it is I don't have a blank check, man. I mean, getting somebody to program, it's not cheap. Yeah. And, you know, if you can't go from zero to 100. So it's really kind of sitting back and making sure that if you are using a consultant, you've got somebody that's familiar with the product and has experience doing it. To take, they can see the 10,000 foot overview and say, here's where you want to be in five years. Let's back into what you need to do now and come up with a strategy for building that out so that you're where you need to be in five years or whatever that number is. That, way, that makes way more sense than, you know, just trying to cobble things together. You, you, the system's going to do what you tell it to do. So if you're illogical in your approach, then the system's not going to work right. And I think that a lot of agencies, again, it goes back to people complaining about shiny object syndrome and technology and all of that. That's why they want to try and ramp up and do everything so fast. Whereas, with something like that, if you do it right the first time, you don't ever have to do it again. So if as long as you're paying the money and investing it, pay the money and invest it to do it the right way. Yeah, we just brought a guy on um, a couple of days ago uh, that was recommended to us by the Institute of Work Comp Professionals. And uh, we're, we're completely, we're starting with just workers comp, but automating that process from the onboarding standpoint to, you know, 90 days from renewal and trying to get them at the end of the day, really buy into our process but it's going to provide value for them, you know, and I'm not even going to have to touch them, you know, not necessarily every month, but, you know, realistically, my, my entire um, client retention is going to be based on how I handle those claims and how we, you know, push it to a successful renewal rather than dealing with the meaty gritty um, kind of details that I shouldn't. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, listen, man, we have been going way, we went way past an hour. Um, we could probably talk for another hour easily. I know people are going to want to reach out to you. How can they find you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, um, Harrison Wicker. And, uh, you know, Facebook, connect with me there. Um, you know, I'm big on social media. I know InsureTech, in uh, InsureTech scene is pretty big on Twitter. I follow, follow that a lot, but um, not super active on that. So LinkedIn and Facebook are probably my two go-tos. I never, I never could get into Twitter. I'm not really sure what the deal is with that, but it just wasn't my, wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah, I get plugged into cool conversations, but uh, it's just too hard to, too difficult to stay active on it. It's one more thing to manage, man. Raphael, yeah. freaking Twitter king. That guy loves Twitter. Is he really? That's yes. random to me. Yeah, no, he loves Twitter. He, I think that he probably talks to his wife on it. <laughs> he probably doesn't. I never, never would have guessed that. Seeing the way that dude types. Well, the, yeah, <laughs> Well, he's got thumbs, right? So he can do that. But I um, I get notifications all the time that says Raph liked this, Raph retweeted, whatever. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like an anomaly. So. That's bizarre. 
Well, listen, Harrison, thanks so much for coming on, man. I appreciate you being patient. We were a little yeah. slow in getting started. Good yeah. info. Definitely we'll have you back at some point to hear how things are going. Um, but again, just really appreciate you being on, man. I hope you have a great week. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for letting me kick it with you guys. All right, yeah, brother. Take sure. care, man. Thanks, man. See you. Yeah, see, see you. you. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.